Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. Hebrews, chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 12 through chapter 6, verse 3. Hebrews 5, 12 through chapter 6, verse 3. And we'll be considering Christian maturity. Christian maturity. Maturity. Give attention to God's holy word. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the great salvation which you have wrought for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We marvel, O Lord, at the way in which you have worked in our lives, the same way that you have worked in creating the universe, by the word of your power. And we pray now, O Lord, that you would pull out your spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, that this word indeed might be a word of power to save us, to sanctify us, and to preserve us for our heavenly home. And we ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. In the early days of the American colonies, there was a tree. It was a special tree that the settlers found in the hills of Appalachia and all along the eastern seaboard. And this tree is, it was one of the great gifts of God to this land. This tree was of such a type that it, uh, its wood was of such quality that it was perfect for burning in the fireplace or for building homes and structures out of. These trees grew to such a size when the, when the uh, settlers and the colonists arrived here that if you were an industrious man with some industrious friends, you could build an entire farm out of one tree. They were massive. Not only were these trees good for building, the fruit of these trees was delicious and nutritious for man and beast. In fact, when these trees were still around, the, the poor folks who lived in the mountains of Appalachia used to raise hogs. And these hogs would be allowed to forage freely in the forest. And because of these trees and the fruit these trees produced, it produced some of the best pork and ham you had ever tasted. And they were abundant. It was free for the picking. They were everywhere across the Appalachian Mountains. Some of you know the tree that I'm speaking about. The, the tree I'm talking about is called the American chestnut tree. This tree used to cover large swaths of the eastern seaboard, but around 1904, there was a blight that came. 
This was a fungus that was accidentally introduced to this continent, and this blight began killing off the American chestnut tree, such that to this day, you will be very hard-pressed to find a mature, fruitful American chestnut tree anywhere in this country. There are a few here and there, but they are nothing compared to what they used to be when the Europeans first arrived here. Just like with the American chestnut tree, though, immaturity in the Christian life, immaturity is a blight upon the church. You see, in the American chestnut, this blight comes and it kills off the mature trees, but what ends up happening is that the rootstock may survive and the shoots will come up from the rootstock, but the blight comes and the American chestnuts become stunted. They never grow larger than about three or four feet, when before they were towering giants that you could build a cabin out of. They never grow more than about three or four feet, and they never come to maturity and produce chestnuts because of this blight. Likewise, in the church, in the Christian life, immaturity is a blight upon the churches. It is a blight that causes Christians and churches to be stunted, and to never grow to fruitfulness. And what we're going to see in this passage specifically is that Christian immaturity is a blight upon the church. And it is something to be repented of. Christian immaturity is a blight upon the church and it is something to be repented of. Our passage has two sections. Section 1... Christian immaturity described. Section 2, Christian immaturity repented of. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 14 is Christian immaturity described. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, Christian immaturity repented of. Again, chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, we have a description. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, we have an exhortation to repentance. And so we begin by looking at our passage. But before we get into the details, keep in mind the context of where we are in the book of Hebrews. This section that the author is now going into, it will continue on into the next section that we'll look at next week. But this section of the letter is the author giving his reasons for what he said in verse 11. Remember what he says in verse 11. He had just finished speaking about the glories of Christ as our great high priest who through his work on the cross became fully qualified to save you through his sacrifice. And then in verse 11 he says, Of whom, of Christ, we have many things to say, but they're hard to communicate since you have become dull of hearing. And so what the author is now going to do is give the reasons why he says that. He's going to give the causes that lead Christians to be slow and sluggish and lazy in hearing the great things of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins by describing immaturity. This Christian immaturity is described, he begins in verse 12. And he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. Now notice 
who he is speaking to or, or whom he is speaking about. These are Christians who have been converted for some amount of time. He says, according to the time, by this point, you ought to be teachers. At this stage in your Christian life, you have had plenty of time to grow and mature in the Christian faith such that you should be teaching others. However, you need others to teach you. See, he's describing the immaturity, and notice, it is based on the time they have been Christians. For this amount of time, you should have matured by now. He goes on and he says that you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you the first principles of the oracles of God. This phrase, the oracles of God, refers to the Old Testament scriptures. Romans chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, what is the advantage of being a Jew? He says, well, there's many advantages. Primarily, to the Jews were committed the oracles of God, the same phrase we have here. So the oracles of God is usually used to refer to the Old Testament scriptures. He describes what they need to be taught as the first principles of the oracles of God. This, this word in Greek is a word that means the, the basic elements of any body of knowledge. These are the, the one, two, three, four, five of Christianity. These are the ABCs of what God has revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. These are the first principles of what it means to be a Christian. And he says this about his audience, but I think we can all recognize that the church of our day is woefully immature on the basics of the Old Testament. The, the basic principles that the Old Testament teaches, we are so out to left field, it's no wonder we have no impact anymore because of our immaturity. Two, two areas just that just come to mind as I was reflecting on this. One is creation. How uncertain is the church about the doctrine of creation? Not only the fact that all of this marvelous world came from God's creative act, but also the manner in which God did it. You've heard of the debates about theistic evolution versus creationism versus intelligent design versus all of these different views of how God created the world in the church when the Bible clearly says that God created it in the space of six days by the word of his power, amen and amen. But not only do we have disagreement on the fact of creation, the manner of creation, but also the meaning of creation. The, the, the fact that God has created all of this by the word of his power means something. And it means that all things exist for the glory of God. Period. Not only on creation is the church woefully immature, but mankind, humanity itself. We're, 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 we're immature about the nature of humanity, what man really is. But we're also immature about the sexes. What makes a man? What makes a woman? Why are they different? Why are they similar? Why should they be different? But we're also immature on the responsibility of mankind. All of this is revealed in the Old Testament. All of these are the ABCs of Christianity. And our church is woefully ignorant 
of these things. This is an aside. This is a, a good rule of thumb if you want to mature in the Christian life. A, a good discipline for you to start engaging it in, in your life is to avoid pointless disputes. There are many pointless disputes and pointless debates going on in the church, going on online. We'll get to the details later on in chapter 6 about what some of those details might be. But at this point, it's important for us to recognize some things don't need to be debated. Some things are not up for debate. And creation, mankind, or several others we could add here, these are not worth our time. It's very interesting that Paul says in all three pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, avoid vain disputes over the law. Avoid wrangling and genealogies over the meanings of words. This is pointless, unprofitable, don't engage in it. That would be a very good discipline for you to start engaging in. But the author goes on. He, he's described Christian immaturity. He says, by this time you ought to have been teachers. He goes a little bit further and describes uh, what this immaturity actually looks like. And the immaturity actually looks like being unskilled in the word of righteousness. He says that in our next verse. He says, everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. He uses this great metaphor to illustrate his point. Milk versus strong meat. Milk obviously is the food of babies. It's the food of infants. Nursing children must receive milk because that's all they can handle. You can't give them solid food. You can't give them real food because it will make them sick. It could kill them because their body cannot handle it. But we all recognize that we don't want the baby to stay there. We don't want the baby to stay on the bottle. We, we look for that baby to mature, and as your children grow, it's always a, a minor victory when they eat their first piece of egg, or they have their first piece of toast, or they have their first piece of red meat, because we know the child is growing and maturing. And so he describes this maturity versus immaturity with these two images. On the other side, we recognize those of us that are full-grown would become very ill if you only drank milk. You cannot retain your strength physically if all you consume is milk. You need strong meat. You need solid food. Well, he uses this great metaphor, and he says he cashes out the metaphor, as it were, in that the immature are unskilled in the word of righteousness. We might say this, that the milk is doctrines that are fit for the immature or the newly converted. Doctrines that are for the immature in the faith or the newly converted. You might think of the beginning of the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? What rule has, man, has God given to direct man? How he may glorify and enjoy him? Etc., etc. That's the milk of Christianity. Solid meat, solid food would be the deeper mysteries of the faith. The, the relationship between God's decree and man's responsibility. As the author says in this book, the deeper realities of Christ's high priesthood. This is the stronger meat. These are deeper doctrines. 
If you read Paul's epistles, especially Ephesians chapter 3, you find that the heart of the apostle was to dive into these deep doctrinal mysteries and to reveal these glories to the church and to preach these high doctrines. Now, we have a culture in our church, capital C Church, maybe in this church too, but we have a culture that pushes against this, don't we? What do we often hear in the broader church? Doctrine divides. Don't go into the deeper doctrines. Let's just stay on the fundamentals so we can all get along. That's essentially saying that, well, we don't want the steak. We don't want the ribeye steak. Let's all just drink our milk so that we can all drink the same thing. You see, what ends up happening when you only drink the milk? The church becomes stunted. The church does not mature. The church remains unskilled in the word of righteousness. Notice also the author has gone from calling these the oracles of God to the word of righteousness. He's describing the scriptures but with different terms. The oracles of God refers to God's living word. That the Old Testament is God speaking to mankind today. And so it's called the oracles. Well now he moves on to describe the scriptures as the word of righteousness. This is a description of what the scriptures principally teach. The scriptures are the word of righteousness. The the essential nature of the scriptures is described here, but this also tells us what you should look for in the scriptures. When you go to the scriptures, you should look for righteousness. You should look for God's description of what righteousness is, God's way of making you righteous, and the way that God leads you in the paths of righteousness. The scriptures are given to man to reveal the righteousness of God. Paul the Apostle says this in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for in it the power of God, the, the, the right, uh, I'm sorry, it is the power of God unto salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith upon all who believe. Likewise, in Psalm 23, one of the most comforting psalms in all of the scriptures, David talks about God's providential care and leading him on the way of righteousness for his namesake. So the scriptures from beginning to end are the scriptures of righteousness. We often put the cart before the horse, though, don't we, when we go to the scriptures? Oftentimes we we go to the scriptures looking for something that appeals to us rather than appeals to God. We often go to the scriptures looking for happiness, not holiness. You see, the scriptures reveal to you the way of holiness, the way of righteousness. Your happiness is a fruit of your holiness. Holiness is not a fruit of your happiness. So God reveals to us the thing that we need, righteousness and holiness. But we often put the cart before the horse, don't we? We often go to the scriptures looking for happiness. Now there is great happiness and great joy in the Christian life. Paul says godliness with uh, uh, gain with godliness 
sorry, godliness with contentment is great gain. Pardon me. There is incredible joy in the Christian life. But God does not give you joy first. He gives you righteousness first. And then joy comes out of that. So these are a word of righteousness. He has described the immature, unskilled in the word of righteousness, needing to be taught the basic principles. And then he contrasts in verse 14 the immature with the mature. He says, solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Notice that he says the mature have become mature through hard work. They have become mature through use. Another way to translate this word would be habit. They have habituated themselves, they have trained their senses to discern between good and evil. And this discernment is something that has to happen over time. It's something that the Word of God trains us to do, but if we are going to grow in it, if we are going to be mature, we have to apply these lessons in our lives. This use, discerning good and evil, begins with personal application and repentance. Discernment begins in your own conscience in reference to your own life. That's what it means to discern good and evil. And as you grow in that discipline, as you grow in that habit, you learn to choose the good and reject the evil, your heart and your spirit and your maturity will grow in the things of God such that you can handle a discussion of predestination. Such that you can handle a discussion of Jesus Christ, the high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. But you see, growth starts with application and repentance. Again, this is another way, I think, in our generation, and perhaps also in our tradition, the Reformed tradition, we put the cart before the horse. We tend to think maturity is reading more theology, is having a, a, a stronger opinion about some odd, unique, reformed doctrine. We think that's maturity. But notice that what the author says is maturity is not intellectual primarily. Maturity is a matter of your life. As your life becomes conformed to the Word of God, then you mature. He says that the, the, the mature have their senses trained by reason of use to discern both good and evil. I want to turn you to Deuteronomy 17. Look to Deuteronomy 17. And what Moses says to the king. Deuteronomy 17 verses 18 through 20. Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20, Moses writes to the people, And it shall be when he, the king that is appointed, sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of the law in this book, from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life 
that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Brothers and sisters, you are kings and queens in Christ. Through union with Christ, he has elevated you to the right hand of the Father. And as Peter says, you are royalty in Christ. Christ has crowned you with the crown of righteousness through his grace and union with him. But, being kings in Christ is a grand benefit of the gospel. It also carries with it a grand responsibility. If you are crowned with the crown of righteousness, you are duty-bound to be skilled in the word of righteousness. That's what Moses is telling us in Deuteronomy 17. And this is Christian maturity. This is what it means to be mature as a Christian. Well, the author has described immaturity for us. He's told us what it is. But he doesn't leave us there. He shows us how to repent of Christian immaturity. Now, I want to ask you, before we get into this repentance, how do you measure up to this description? What side of the line would you fall on? Would you fall on the side of immaturity? Or would you fall on the side of maturity. You see, one of the reasons the scriptures are given to us is so that we can judge ourselves according to what the scriptures teach. If you find yourself on the side of immaturity, ask yourself why. Maybe before we look at this description, we need to remember the broader context of what the author is doing. Remember that the author is giving the reasons why sermons are burdensome to the church. Why it is they cannot listen to the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. Why it is that they have no time for the things of Christ and His priesthood. Is that true of you? Is coming to church a chore for you? Is listening to the great things of God burdensome to you? Is reading the scriptures something that you would rather not do? You are immature in the Christian faith. And your immaturity is stunting your growth. In the gospel, in Christ, in the scriptures, God promises to make you a spiritual towering giant. Casting the shade of God's love everywhere that you go and spreading the fruits of His gospel wherever you find yourself. But if you're immature, you will never reach that. You will be stunted. Like the chestnut tree that was in my backyard in Lawrenceville. Never got to be more than four feet tall. It was a shrub that was in the way. Never produced any fruit. And it was good for nothing. Brothers and sisters, immaturity is a blight upon the churches. 
But God gives more grace. He shows you the way of escape. He shows you how to repent of immaturity. That's what we look at now in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Notice he begins. He says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles... Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation. He says, he talks about leaving the principles, and he calls these principles a foundation. You know, it's it's interesting that um, you never really notice sidewalks until you trip. That's how foundations work, aren't they? If they're well built and well laid, you're not supposed to notice them. They're just supposed to be there and do their job. It's when the foundations are out of whack that we begin to notice them and we notice that there's a problem. The author here is telling us these doctrines, these basic principles of Christ are like the foundation of your life. They're there. They never go away. They're what you walk on as a Christian. But you don't need to pay attention to them. You know, if you took your family to the park and you went for a walk, it, it would be an odd sight if you and the wife and the kids just sort of stared at the sidewalk and began examining every pebble and every little piece of moss and all of the ants walking across the sidewalk and you say, what are you doing? Oh, we're going for a walk in the park. But you're not going anywhere. You're not moving. You're staring at the sidewalk. That's the description he gives of those who are immature, who, who are giving so much attention to these basic principles, they don't make progress. They can't move down the path. The, the word that he uses here, leaving the discussion, it doesn't mean that you forget these things. It means that you are standing upon them, that you're not obsessed with them. You're, you're matured and you're walking down the path. Now just a note here about translations. I think this is one place, chapter 6, verse 1, where the New King James is better than the King James and I think better than the ESV. Uh, Notice how the New King James translates this. Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles. The King James will say leaving the uh, elementary principles of the doctrine of Christ. The ESV has a similar translation. There's a word in this verse, and the word is logos. It's a Greek word. It means word. That could be translated as discussion, or it can be translated as doctrine. I think in this context, it's better to translate it as discussion because the author is not saying depart from the doctrines of Christ. Heaven forbid, he's not saying that. He's saying let us leave aside the discussion of these things. Let us leave aside the obsessive analysis and constant return to these fundamental principles of the faith. I think that's the point of this passage. And so he says, uh, let's move on from these things And what he really means here is let's move on from the discussion of the benefits of Christ to talk about the benefactor, Christ. You see, what he wants us to move away from is talking only about the benefits of Christ and mature so that we can talk about the glories of Christ who gives us these benefits. This is the point of the whole book of Hebrews, isn't it? Turn back to chapter 3. 
verse 1 in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. The immediate context that we just read in chapter 5 is that he wants to talk about Christ as the high priest. And he says, of whom we have many things to say. Of Christ we have many things to say. You flip on in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 1. This is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high in the heavens. You continue reading in chapter 12, verse 3. I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us by looking at Jesus. That's where he wants us to move to. Away from the benefits and to the benefactor. And so he says, leaving these elementary principles, let us go on to perfection. Another important passage that illustrates this point, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Hopefully a well-known passage to you, but I want to point something out to you. Notice that in this passage, John is writing to the immature and to the mature. He's writing to little children, and he's writing to fathers. But notice how he describes each. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. What a benefit of being a Christian. What a prized doctrine that we have as children of God. He forgives us of our sins. Glory to God. Hallelujah. I'm writing to you little children because God has forgiven you of your sins. Amen and amen. But notice what he says in the very next verse. I'm writing to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. Him who is from the beginning is none other than than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The beginning of John's letter, he says, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and our hands have looked upon concerning the word of life. Then John goes on to describe him who was from the beginning as God the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that the little children are described by the benefit they receive. The fathers are described by the one that they know and adore. And so the author of Hebrews is going to show us how to mature, how to get to that point. Returning now to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, he says, let us go on to perfection. Now this can sometimes be a scary word in the Christian church because many have abused this word. We sometimes read this word and we think, is he talking about sinless perfection? Does that what he mean? That's not what he means. The word perfection here is actually the same word from chapter 5, verse 14. Solid food belongs to those who are perfect, of full age. And so in chapter 6, verse 1, 
He says, let us go on to maturity. Let us go on to perfection. The word here in Greek means simply the goal that is sought after. It says, let us press forward and achieve the purpose for which God has saved us. The Greek word here, for those who are interested, is the word telos. It's a very important Greek word, very important in the New Testament, and very important in the doctrines of Christ. But at this point, just know, he is saying, let us leave aside the elementary principles and press on to achieve the purpose for which God has saved us. Let us press on to maturity. And the goal that is sought after, the goal that every Christian strives for, is to know Christ more fully. It is to know Him and Him alone. It is to bask in the glory of the Redeemer and being found in the Redeemer to be redeemed and saved at the last day. This is what Paul the Apostle says in Philippians chapter 3. One of the most glorious chapters in all of the New Testament. Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. You ever ask yourself how people could be burned at the stake for the gospel? You ever ask yourself how the martyrs could be thrown to the lions in the Roman Colosseum? It's because of what Paul is saying here. The, the chief aim of the Christian's heart is nothing else but knowing Christ, suffering the loss of all things so that I might have a glimpse of the glory of Christ. This is maturity. This is what the Holy Spirit wants for us. This is what Paul strove after. This is what you and I need to strive after. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is what the author of Hebrews wants for each and every one of you. This is what God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit wants you to lay hold of is to press on to perfection. Hebrews chapter 6, he, he exhorts us how to repent and then he gives us some detail about what these basic Christian principles are. It gives this, this very concise but also clear list of what some of the basics of Christianity are. As we go through this list, I want you to keep in mind each one of the things he lists are the way in which you enjoy the benefits of Christ. Each one of these things is how souls taste and see that the Lord is good. 
He begins with the, with the entrance into life. He says, let us not lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. We don't need to lay that stepping stone again. If you repent from your sins and believe in God's mercy, He will forgive you. You might say, but pastor, I've been sinning this way for years. Repent and believe. But, but, but I, I, my head is filled with all of these thoughts. I don't know what to do. Repent and believe. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let us not lay that foundation stone again. He goes on to say, uh, repentance and faith, and then he says, of doctrines of baptisms. Baptism is the sacrament of entrance into the church, joining with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it symbolizes the outpoured Holy Spirit. It seals to your heart that the Holy Spirit dwells with you and in you. That's what baptism is about. If you have been baptized and if you have believed in the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit is your companion. He walks at your right hand. He is the paraclete, the one that cheers and encourages you on in the race of faith. He is with you. And you might say, I don't feel like it. You might say, I don't, I don't speak in tongues. I can't prophesy. I can't heal with my touch. None of those things are signs that the Holy Spirit is with you. Baptism is a sign that the Holy Spirit is with you. He goes on and talks about baptisms. He says the laying on of hands. This refers to ordination to church office. And it is through the laying on of hands that God has raised up church officers. And as Ephesians 4 teaches us, those church officers are how Christ the King guards, protects, and rules over you. You have ordained officers in your life. Those ordained officers are stewards of the King. The presence of officers is the presence of the kingdom. Christ is ruling and reigning over you. He goes on and talks about the resurrection from the dead. Paul spoke about this in, in Philippians 3. Our hope is that these dying bodies will be renewed on the last day. And then it says, of eternal judgment. Brothers and sisters, for the sinner, judgment day is the most terrible day of all history. Judgment day is the day when all of the dead shall rise, and all of the dead shall give account to God the Father in the person of the Son for every word, thought, deed that they ever committed or uttered. For the wicked, this is the horror of all horrors because righteousness will be accounted for. But for the believer, for you who are in Christ, whose sins have been forgiven, who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, who can look to the Lord Jesus and say, My Lord and my God, Judgment Day is the day of perfect rejoicing and joy. It will be the best day of all history for you. Because on that day, based on the righteousness of Christ, God will declare forgiven forever in front of the whole world. Right now, Christians do not appear to be better than the world. But God knows. Right now, the Christians appear no more holy than the world around them. God knows. And on Judgment Day, He will make all the world know by His sovereign judicial decree. 
And so he gives these doctrines as the benefits, the way we enjoy the benefits of Christ. And they are glorious benefits, brothers and sisters. He's not downplaying these in any way. But he is saying, these are the foundations of your life. This is the sidewalk that you travel on. This is the way of righteousness that God leads you on. But remember what David said in Psalm 23. The Lord is at my right hand. My destiny is to dwell in His house forever and to behold His glory. The greatest joy is not that the sidewalk will never cause me to trip. The greatest joy is the one who walks with me on that sidewalk. And he says, let us go on to perfection. Let us go on to maturity if God permits. Maturity happens by God's work in you. Maturity is God's work in your heart through the means of grace. But he says this in verse 3 also to warn us. You see, to obtain maturity... There's a limited time. All of you have less time than you think you have. All of us have less time than we realize. And what the author is telling us is that at this point, if you're repenting of your immaturity, which you should, repenting of your immaturity means to do what Paul the Apostle said in Ephesians 5. Do not be unwise, but wise, knowing what the will of the Lord is, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. You know, time is the most valuable resource that you have. It makes the rich and the poor equal. Time is the only resource you have that you cannot increase. You cannot save. Once time is gone, it's never coming back. But, like money, you can invest your time. You can invest your time in things that profit. And the chief profit is growing in maturity and pressing on to perfection. The American chestnut tree is a sad, sad story. I would have liked to have seen one. I probably never will. But... The American chestnut tree perhaps is not without hope. There are efforts going on right now to try to bring back the American chestnut tree through some very interesting technology and through some very interesting genetic modification of the remaining American chestnuts we have that looks like they're going to be able to change the DNA of the American chestnut to make it resistant to this blight. Likewise for Christian immaturity. It is a blight upon the church. And it is a sad tale to think what the church could be if she was not infected with the blight of immaturity. But just as the American chestnut perhaps will come back through a change of DNA, through a change of its blood, as it were, you also, through the blood of Christ, and a timely repentance can begin the journey to Christian maturity. 
You have the opportunity today to repent and return to the path of Christian maturity. If you are under the sound of my voice, hope is not gone for you. But hope depends on your repentance and your faith in God. Not only do you have the opportunity, not only can you mature as a Christian, you must mature. There is no option. You must be growing in the faith. You must be maturing as a Christian. For as we learned from the American chestnut tree, an immature Christian is stunted and fruitless. And as we're going to learn in the next section, those that are stunted and fruitless are good for nothing. Do not be a fruitless tree. Do not be a stunted planting of the Lord. Repent of immaturity. Press on to perfection. Desire to see the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus and you will grow. You will be fruitful. And God and your neighbor will bless you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it is a word of righteousness. That it is the very oracles of God, the speaking God, speaking to us in our day. And we thank you also for the, the content of your word, which is the way of righteousness through faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that through growing in maturity in your word, you would show us more of your glory. You would show us more of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we all might have the heart of Paul the Apostle counting all things as rubbish for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.